the Suicide Monk Podcast, a platform dedicated to fostering open and honest conversations about the deeply sensitive and complex topic of suicide. Before we delve into the narratives and discussions presented here, it's important to emphasize that we are not medical professionals, therapists, or counselors. We do not possess the qualifications to offer clinical advice or treatment. Instead, the Suicide Monk podcast serves as a safe space for individuals to share their personal stories and experiences, all while preserving their anonymity. We encourage our guests to tell their stories anonymously, recognizing that privacy and anonymity can be crucial for those who wish to share their experiences without fear of judgment or exposure. Our mission is to create a supportive community, raise awareness, and promote understanding, all while emphasizing that seeking professional help is crucial when dealing with mental health issues and suicidal thoughts. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please reach out to a mental health professional or contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 for immediate assistance. Together, the Suicide Monk podcast aims to break the stigma surrounding mental health and let those who are struggling know they are not alone. Welcome to the Suicide Monk and I am your host. Today, we're going to be following up on part two with Anne and this is the story of her husband. Um and their relationship and her inside knowledge into his mental health, um, how she dealt with that, uh, and then what he left behind um, in some of those shattered pieces. So just join us today, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Um, It's a hard story. It's a heartfelt story. (laughs) If it doesn't tug on you, well, you're you're probably on the wrong podcast. So, all right. Thanks for listening. Oh, and uh, yeah, now I'm learning some new stuff. So I'm going to share that with you. Um, let me see if I can remember it. As I do my reading today, Q&A poll. Oh, yeah. I'm going to do Q&A polls. I think I'm going to start doing a a 15, no, maybe a 30 minute. This is kind of a new idea maybe a 30 minute um like join me for coffee on thursday morning and do a reading and then do a, uh questions from the prior week now obviously i can't do that in the first week but um if you guys participate in this it will it will drastically and and help uh spread the word so um yeah please join I'm going to put some questions out there. I might have to do it for a week or two, but hopefully you guys will interact with that. And that would be fun. Um, I think, well, I'm having fun in the midst of my dark parts of my life. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that's it. Uh, We'll just do Q&As, and I think I'm going to start trying to do videos at some point here once I figure out how to edit that. seems like a good idea but anything to push it forward so thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the flip side um marriage when did you get married i was just a few weeks before i turned 21. okay and how long were you married 10 years almost okay um you want to give us a background on on your husband and sure, um, like where you guys met and how you met. Do you have any fond memories that 
Oh, I s- like yeah, I s- sure. Yeah. I still <laughs> probably somewhere. Um, I think I think mostly it's all been blocked out. Um, but we'll see if stuff comes up as I start talking. Um, so we met at church in a single adults group um, because Mormons are always happy to put people together to marry off and reproduce. Right. Uh, that's that's kind of the thing. <laughs> and um, so we met there. And, um, like, I, I kind of hated him at first. Um, and then took time to get to know him or gave him, like, 10 minutes of my time. And it's like, oh, okay, this isn't, like, a stupid, heinous person, I guess. I guess I can actually have a conversation with you. Um, so our relationship developed quickly um because mormons don't have sex before they get married so generally they try to marry you off quick get married fast yeah because um otherwise you're going to hell if you have sex before you get married and um you know so just uh like we We met in March, started talking and dating in, like, May. We're engaged in July with an original wedding date set for October, but those sexual urges are strong, and we we did actually have sex before we got married. And so then in like the shame of repentance and punishment, we were like, fuck it, let's just get married in September so that then we can continue having sex. And then it's with permission. Right. Like now it's allowed. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, instead of feeling shitty for um, having sex with the person that you love and that you want to marry and that you've already made plans to marry, like, instead of being shamed for that and guilted for that, like, let's just get married and then we can, we'll continue to repent over, like, who the fuck makes somebody <laughs> repent for having sex with somebody you love? Like, that God's an asshole. Um, <laughs> that God is an asshole. That God is an asshole. <laughs> you, you give these, these parts that we're not supposed to use, but only on occasion. It's like, right. only under certain circumstances can you. Use that, and otherwise you're tormented. Thank mm-hmm. you. You're yes. welcome. Yes. And he's definitely more preoccupied policing unmarried consensual sex than he is. Right. <laughs> than he's concerned about non-consensual sex right. at all. Yeah. So he needs to get his priorities straight. Right. Um, so, yeah, we got married, and... um. And then, you know, quickly started having kids. Uh, it wasn't the original plan that we had, but um, that's what we ended up deciding to do. And um, so we had five kids very quickly. And we start so we we had started living in can in Colorado and then um 
year and a few months after we got married, um, we moved to Kansas where his family was living and we wanted to live close to them. So we moved to a small town in Kansas, population 3,000. Um, and my knowledge of his suicidal thoughts started when we were, I think it was before we were engaged. I'm not, honestly, I'm not sure. I don't know if it was before we were engaged or not. Um, but. Well, chances are that if you guys were having a conversation, you probably know about it. He probably divulged it at some point. There was one point where, um, like, he had told me about it, and he had told me that he had, um, so he actually had made an attempt already. Um, he told me that his suicidal thoughts started um, around age 14. Um, and frequent when his family moved to Kansas when he was 14. Um, and that he had run away from home over it. And, um, then, you know, came back and nobody, like, he never really got help for it. He just tried to be a better person. Just trying to manage it Scripture himself. and prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Just scripture and prayer. Um, so um just that. And then he went on his mission for the church when he was 19 and he was in California um serving his mission there. And suicidal thoughts increased during that time as well. Um, to the point where he did make an attempt. Um, and at that point they said, oh, well, if you're trying, if you're trying to kill yourself, uh, we need to send you home. So it was, uh, essentially the equivalent of a military honorable discharge. Um, like you did your best, but um, you, you need to go home early. Um, so he did. And then he enrolled in college. And so like he, his family was still living in Kansas, but he had an older brother who was living in Denver. And so instead of going back to Kansas, he lived with his brother and was going to college, um, in Denver and had access to a counselor. Um, he had been on medication during his mission and that was when he made the attempt on his life. So he was willing to do counseling, but he was scared of medication because that was where things got bad enough that he actually tried. So he wasn't willing to do medication. Um, and he did counseling for a while and then just kind of got to a point where he didn't like doing that um, because it made him feel worse. So then he was opposed to counseling as well. 
So from the point that he was 21, he just lived with it on his own and didn't get any help. Wow. So. I can tell you that's uh, torment. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And then you you start dating somebody who makes you feel good and makes you feel happy. And um, those thoughts go away. And then at the end of the night, you go home and they come back. So, um, you know, he he got to a point during our dating relationship where he's just said, hey, like he he had a crying breakdown at the end of one night and was like, I just. It's so hard for me to go home. And he explained to me why. And, you know, that kind of shocked and horrified me, too. And I was like, well, of course, I'm not going to send you home. If that's what it's like. Right. Um. So. You know, but again, that goes into the whole Mormon thing of. It's very taboo. Yes. You, you can't do that. Right. Um. So, I mean, even at first we weren't having sex we were just sleeping together um because i had to hide him in my bedroom for my roommate i couldn't even just like say well just be on the couch because you know you can you can sleep on the couch and not go home um but um yeah that would have not been okay to my roommate so like i just hid things and let him be in my room and so then we were sleeping together and then that's you know sex happens because that's what you do right um if you're, if you're a normal human yeah i'm the, not it it goes in that direction if you're sleeping together and you've got those sexual attractions then yeah. it goes in that direction like yeah. one does not have that degree of self-control yeah usually I, right um yeah I th- Biblically, I think sex is, there's a, there's a reason for it, that it should be singular. And that's, I mean, the obvious, you, you risk disease, you risk a bad situation, you risk rape, you risk, you know, there's, especially for a woman, risk pregnancy. Um, and men kind of get a free pass when it comes to all of it, all of it, really. There's not really much, um, there's not really a whole lot of consequence for somebody who rapes. And ruins somebody's life. There's not much consequence for a pedophile. They they ruin people's lives, destroy them. Yeah. And there's really no consequence. So, yeah, I think I think a lot of the biblical stuff that uh, Christianity or Mormonism, all of it across the board, is it's it's just control with with all the narrative, and I think it's. It's not a heaven or hell issue. It's a, it's just, no. it's, there's consequences to our actions and decisions. That's it. Mm-hmm. And, but the omnipotent God, I think is, knows that. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, that's why it's put in place. It's not, well, I hate you for it. That's, right. that's a really bad God. Mm-hmm. A really bad God. Yeah. If you want to live with that God, go ahead. Exactly. Um. Mm-hmm. But go ahead. Yeah. So um, so I knew about these things before we got married. And um, 
you know, the way that he explained it to me of, oh, well, these thoughts just go away when I'm with you. I was like, okay, so then it's like, it's not going to be a problem. Like, this isn't going to be an issue during our relationship. Um, but again, that was people not understanding how things work. Yeah. Um, so, um, so we got married and I was thinking that, you know, things were going to be fine and this was not going to be a prevailing theme in my life. Um, but those thoughts continued to come back for him. And it's not that he ever felt depressed. And it's not that he ever wanted to die. It's just that he couldn't stop the thoughts. So you That's the way he always described it. Yeah. He's like, I'm not depressed. Like, And he would act fine and he'd be engaging in his interests and be happy and laughing and joking. I mean, granted, you know. People who are depressed do that, too. It's a mask. But usually one of the signs of depression is withdrawing from your interests. Um, he was always actively engaged in our family, in our relationship, um, in his hobbies. He was developing new hobbies. Um, so he was thriving. He was. He's still just under all of that had incessant thoughts just pop into his mind. You should kill yourself. You should kill yourself. You should kill yourself to the point where he, like he was such an avid journal journaler. Um, he journaled all the time. He journaled every day. And if he missed a day, then he would backlog. Okay. Um, he kept count. He kept count of the number of thoughts, the number of times that he had the thought during the day to kill himself. And he always notated that number in the margin of each journal entry. So. Wow, he was active, actively involved in his. In there's that. an entire like. Years and years worth of that data collection. Of days of zero, 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 and then days of 45 and days of 80 and like a whole range. That's interesting. Yeah. So he, yeah, he just always tracked it. What, what, what did he do for work? Um, he, so he, he didn't finish college. He, we got, married while he was still going to college and then pregnant quickly. And so he struggled with work, school and family balance. And so he chose to quit school and just do work and family. Um, and so like when we, when we got together, he was, doing security at Raytheon in Aurora and um, and then we moved to Kansas and he did 
he worked for a company that like re- that fixed sewers and septic tank stuff. Um, and then then he worked at a machining company, and so he was on the floor as a machinist, and then um, moved up into quality control. Okay. Um, would would you consider him a intelligent man? Uh, yes, highly intelligent. Well, was, that's where I'm going with that. It sounds like he is. Yeah. Just from just from the little you've told me, I'm like, okay, yeah. Like, um, did he see the? So a lot of, and you'll hear this often, if you talk to enough enough people who think about suicide, and you mentioned it earlier in, in the beginning of your story was. What's the point? Um, Generally, at least what I'm finding out is that people who are intelligent, and I I could say, oh, well, in the spiritual background, but most Americans have a spiritual background of some sort. Whatever nature, yes. When you enter into the combination of the two, you can't reconcile what it's what you're told life is supposed to be and what it actually is and what i mean by that is you we have these narratives that were taught by the government by the church by our parents by our peers but when when at some point you just there there's like an awakening that happens and you're like i'm only one person how am i going to reach anybody how am I going to do anything? What good am I? Like you start to minimize your ability to positively impact people's lives. So then you, you're like, well, even if I do it on a small scale, what's the point? Yeah. I feel this bad, so what's the point? It's not getting any better for me, so what is the point? And that's kind of the thought process that starts to happen. And when the veil's lifted, um, the darkness is is standing right in front of you, unfortunately. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned that earlier in your story. I'm like, that's that's the low grade depression that I feel every day, every day. I'm like, what's the point? Mm-hmm. But go ahead. Um. So we lived in Kansas for. Um, six and a half years, and then uh, moved to Colorado Springs. Um, and he, um, I'm actually going to backtrack. Nope, I'll get to that. <laughs> um, so we moved to Colorado Springs, and he got a job working at another uh, military manufacturing company. Um, And then at one point we discussed and decided that it would be a good idea for him to join the Air Force Reserves. That was something that we had talked about a lot of times throughout our relationship um, that he had interest in doing, he wanted to do this, he wouldn't, or go through the ROTC program or whatever, and and just any degree of 
hey, I have interest in being in the Air Force. And um, at that point, like we had five kids, but he wasn't um, excluded because of his age. So it was like, this is the last chance. If you wanted to do this, then okay, we we need to do it now. And so that was that was something that he really wanted to do, and had always been encouraged by his older brother, who was an Air Force reservist. Um, and so, so we decided to go for it, and that was in July 2018. And so. He went off to basic training, boot camp, and I packed up the kids in our Honda Odyssey and went on a road trip um, because I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna manage five kids' emotions at home of why isn't Dad coming home every night? We miss Dad. <laughs> right, <laughs> We're right. not home. <laughs> then uh, then this is nothing that's happening so yeah i can't complain this is this is going to be how i process this uh if i'm going to be a single parent for six months then we're going to go play and so that's what i did and um things unraveled quickly though because when he got to boot camp um, he was asked questions about his medical history, and even though he had answered he had answered those in the um, in the application process, um, his medical history, his mental health history, um, in boot camp, he told them that he had made. You know, that when he was 20, um, at this point, he was 30, 31. So he told them that when he was 20, he had made a suicide attempt. And um, they not only red flagged that as a as a thing, but um, also the fact that that was not mentioned on his. Oh. Yep. His, his initial paperwork on his application, and that was because he was sick when he filled out the application. And then, uh, you know, when he had mental clarity, he told his recruiter, oh, hey, I, you know, I filled that out wrong, and it should say this. And she said, no, don't change anything. So he made a mistake. He tried to fix the mistake and uh, was told not to. So maybe if that mistake had been corrected in the first place, he might have been red flagged in the first place and not been let in to begin right. with. Yeah. And so, okay. Not felt that disappointment. Right. But then here he is accepted in and then red flagged. And then on top of that, accused of of giving fraudulent information um, that, you know, they indicated that you know, this could be an, a dishonorable discharge. This could affect your ability to get a clearance or work for any government agency, which was his job. Right. Um, and so, like, all this stuff gets dumped on. And then on top of that, he's pulled out of the main group and put into this holding zone. It was called, like, medical holding or whatever for the people who 
it had been determined you're going to be discharged for whatever reason. But while we process that paperwork, you're just zoned off. Um, so like the Air Force term for that was med hold. But um, the for the guys who were in it, they called it purgatory. Like this is just where we are waiting for somebody to let us live. Um, and so that also unraveled him, that, that unhinged him because there were some guys in there who were like clinically insane saying, I'm going to grab an, uh, an automatic rifle or whatever. I'm going to grab a gun and I'm just going to go kill as many people as I can. So he's like in the same place with those people who are. Who are actually who are nutty. actually yes, and so that felt like a very unsafe environment for him, and there was no solid supervision and security. Um, so he like he he unraveled a lot, and when he was discharged, the whole process, the whole experience was maybe three or four weeks. That was it. Um, not just med hold, but I mean, from the beginning of being like I said goodbye to he was returned to me. Um, no, no, it wasn't three or four weeks. It was like five or six weeks, but still it was less than two months. Wow. Um, and he was returned to me and he was not the same person. He uh, had massive anxiety attacks and panic attacks and um he had PTSD um he'd have triggers like we couldn't go out in public because being in a crowded place was just a complete panic meltdown for him he couldn't participate in taking the kids trick or treating um there were a number of times that i would it, like he managed to come home from work and um cuz he was still able to keep his job that was fine but um like he'd get home from work and that was like as much energy as he had for the day so i would still do all of the night stuff i would still be doing all of the meal and cleanup and feeding the kids and um getting them to bed and then i would come downstairs and find him in a fetal position in the corner of a kitchen having a panic attack. And then I'd have to take care of him through that. And so he was, he was returned to me at the end of September. Um, and I'm phrasing it that way. Um, because that's how it felt like it was just, okay, well we broke your husband here. You can have him back. Right. Yep. Without acknowledgement of breaking him. Um, oh, they did the same thing to my son. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, that's that's, not that's what the military does. Um, so from the end of September until February, there was, like, it was just me taking care of him. And 
like begging him to talk to a counselor, see somebody get help. And he didn't until February. Um, Meanwhile, I was starting to go through my own mental breakdowns and um, like my mental health was unwinding um, of just the inability to cope with this. And he didn't want anybody to know what was going on. He didn't want to be stigmatized. He didn't want to be viewed differently. Um, and that was the that was how he was with his suicidal thoughts the whole time of our relationship, too. He didn't want anybody to know any of this. So that meant that I carried it all alone for him. But I had no support because I couldn't talk to anybody. Right. So. Yeah, this stuff is heavy. It's yeah, it's fucking heavy. Um, so, so that was my experience. And, um, finally around February of 2019, I, you know, he, he finally listened to me and sought out some help, but, you know, again, he, from his previous experience, he was hesitant to do so. He was hesitant to do any talk therapy because that made him feel shittier before, um, like that's how therapy works though um it oh yeah you're starting to take a hard look at yourself it makes you feel bad yeah and um and you have to suck it up for a couple months and then after you you get enough out then then the healing starts to take place and you can start to feel better and so if you get scared after like three or four sessions of oh this makes me feel worse it hasn't been enough time for right. for it to help you feel better. Um, so, but when you're already in such a low place that you think it can't get worse, and then you try something to help you and it makes you feel worse, that scares the shit out of you. So there's that too. Um, Anyway, so he he saw a therapist, and um, that therapist gave him a soft diagnosis of manic depressive. That's what it was. So not bipolar, where you've got it, I don't know. It was it was different from bipolar, but the manic depressive. Um, They're extreme. They're extreme highs and extreme lows. Yeah. And the the more manic you are, the worse it is. Like I have a friend, um, she has deep, deep lows and really, really high highs. But like I'm kind of that way too, mm-hmm. but I recognize it so I can kind of manage it, control it, not let it take over. Like when I feel really high, I can... I'll just sit uh, because I'll start saying shit and doing shit. And then I look back and I'm like, well, you did this out of this and you kind of made a fool of yourself. And then now we're back on the road to depression. Right. Beat myself up. Yes. So manic depression. Okay. Yeah. But he, he claimed early on in the marriage that 
it wasn't depression. Right. And he still never felt depressed. And that may be like a misunderstanding of it, or it may be possible. Um, you know, depression takes on different faces and different forms and manifests in different ways. It's got different symptoms. Yeah, it does. And so if your symptoms of depression don't match with what your general definition and understanding of it is, then you may not even recognize that you are depressed. Well, the reason I, I, I have a friend, his son has these thoughts that pop in his head but he's he's like i'm not depressed yeah and i'm like that, that's really interesting the this kind of um well the the darkness like this can can pop into something that's relatively good yeah and then take control a little bit at a time so yeah i mean that's that's how my husband felt um was that he he never felt like he was depressed because he, I mean, he would even say like, I'm feeling happy and I felt really happy today and I had a good day and I had good experiences with the people around me. And yet these thoughts keep popping in my head. I can't make them stop. I can't turn that off. Huh. And so, um, but the manic depressive label with all of the like, from the textbook, here are the bullet points of how this how this looks. Um, he felt very seen. He felt validated. He was like, oh, my God, for the first time, there's like possibly an answer for what I'm experiencing. And there's there's hope. He felt hope. For me, it felt like a death sentence. Um, Why do you say that? Be- a death sentence for my life. I felt despair. For for his medical diagnosis? Yeah. I I was like, this is a real thing. It's not going away. It's not going anywhere. This is forever. So this is... So I guess if maybe I'm reading this right, this kind of brought maybe you back to your brother on that. Because... Um... No, because I wasn't thinking anything about suicide um, okay. or my husband's suicide. I still didn't think anything was going to happen. That was just the detriment of... It was the you- detriment and the it was despair from my life. Like, this is always going to be part of my life. I'm always going to have this with him. So it's like jumping on the roller coaster with him. Yeah. And, and, and not just, wanting to. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, and... And I was probably, I was already at like my lowest point, mm-hmm. not of like suicide or anything, but just absolute despair of, I cannot handle his mental health anymore. I've already been handling his mental health for 10 years. And now, now when I'm already exhausted and having my own breakdowns, now you tell me there's a name for this. Yeah. It's a real thing. It's not going away. This is never going to go away. Um, so that just caused me to spiral further. Yeah. Well, that's understandable. I mean, 
And that's what I realize about myself is I don't want anybody to take care of me. But so, so often in my life, somebody's had to. And I'm frankly tired of being taken care of. Yeah. Um, so I just, about five years ago, I stopped being a victim. And I think that's the switch that has to happen. There's a lot of things that have to happen, but that's one of them. You got to stop being a victim and get your ass off the couch and, or out of bed and start doing it for yourself because nobody should have to do that for you. They can walk beside you, but they shouldn't have to carry you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, supporting somebody and being there with them is different than carrying all of that weight. Yeah. Well, you're doing all the work too. Right. That's why you're carrying the weight. I was doing all the work and it was breaking me. Um, so, so yeah, that diagnosis broke me further. Um, and you know, then he was going through medication for it and still going to his therapist and, um, and getting medication changes every three weeks, like, okay, did this improve? Did this not? Like, so they were adjusting it and dialing it in. So it's a dangerous process. It was. And that's when things really just collapsed. Um, in my desperation of holding everything in, bottling everything in, I exploded in the direction of having only one person that I felt like I could talk to and that understood me and that developed into an affair. And um, that that started um, after he was returned home to me and then he found out and then we were trying to work through it and they, you know, stopped and we were seeing, a, we were starting to go to marriage counseling and, um, but in the being cut off from my emotional support again, I just. Spiraled again. I did. And so things, things were bad. Um, and then, and then that's, that's where I was telling him, I can't handle this anymore. You know, you need to, you need to get help. And so he was going to, so that's when he started going to therapy and, um, you know, that diagnosis. I couldn't hold things in anymore again. And so I resumed talking with, with the other person and, and then that ended up resuming the sexual relationship, um, and necessary for me. Like it was, it was something that I clung to for survival of like, this is, this is just my outlet. Like I have to talk to somebody and be with somebody. And, um, 
So you're actually being taken care of instead of having to take care of. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I remember one conversation, um, you know, when my husband was asking me, well, but why, why did you have to talk to somebody else? Why couldn't you talk to me? Right. Well, I need somebody on the outside to talk to. I can't talk to you and tell you what a burden you are to me. Right. You know, not even necessarily that it's like a burden of complaint, but like it's so heavy and you're, you've got your mental health problems and you already feel shitty. How am I going to tell you that that makes me feel shitty? How am I going to tell you that taking care of you and helping you is an overwhelming thing for me to bear? Yeah. I can't. I can't unload that to you and vent that to you. It needs to be to somebody else. Yeah. How, you well, know, and the, you I mean, have I would imagine. to have what, like, it's, it's just a psychological thing. When you are in a stressful situation, it doesn't help to talk to the person who's also in that stressful situation with you. You need somebody else with a different perspective who can empathize. Because the person who's having stress with you isn't capable of empathizing. Right. I mean, you guys already understand each other, but you're both in that. Well, at, at that point, you already you have, know? you have certain walls that are built that don't allow you to move in the direction of, of nurturing a relationship because those walls are built for a reason. You're not talking for a reason. You got to figure out why you're not talking. Yeah. And then. And then if you can actually approach it, they have to be doing hard work on themselves to be able to accept what you have to say. And the same goes for you. You have to be doing, it has to, it becomes reciprocal at that point, even in the toughest situations. But if you don't have that foundation, it'll, you'll never grow. You have to have the outside. You have to have counsel of some sort. Right. And even just having a different perspective that can offer a different viewpoint yes. and, hey, maybe there's a different solution that you can't see because you're in that situation. Maybe there's a different thing that you can try. Other people have different ideas right. because they're not stuck in that situation with you. And so if you're stuck in that situation and, you know, talking to the other person and trying to get help from the other person is not helpful because you're both stuck in that same situation you need outside yes perspective yeah um so yes can i ask you a question about sure. that why why did you choose a male because he gave me the time of day that's fair he was there yeah yeah that's just it so i latched onto somebody who showed that he cared gave me time and understood well, and again, you, you didn't have it, to take care of him. could have been a woman. Yeah. If I had a woman friend who did that. Well, there's, there is that. I mean, I'm just saying it, that's not to say that I didn't have, I don't know, I was. Yeah. And I, this is yeah. not, this is not a slight against women. Okay. But what I've found in general is that. There is this lack of depth 
for a lot of women. They're they're afraid of each other. Uh, maybe I don't know. I don't know what it is, but they don't. There's a reciprocation that doesn't happen at a certain level. Like, how am I going to tell you that? General, if you do have a woman friend, they generally just agree with you. Men are obstinate enough and. We just got enough asshole in us to be like, well, no, that's not right, or that it doesn't sound right. We'll, we'll call each other out very quickly, but it's not in a uh, a catty way. It's like, well, that's illogical, dumbass. You know, let's look at it a different way. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like having boys to girls when they're growing up. Girls are great; they just require more nurturing. Boys are great because you can take them outside, beat shit out of them, and everything's good. You can't do that to girls. You have to nurture them into, um, but girls are also the ones that show you the most love, show you how to love. So they're, you know, they're, they're the quality of both humans are really great, but it does seem that I have a lot of girlfriends. They, they'll tell me things they can't tell their girlfriends, but I'm all, I also invite, I want to know what you're struggling with so we can get to the light. I want to know where life begins. So let's get the shit out of the way. I haven't been able to do that for myself, I, but I haven't had a voice either. And the more I do this, the, the, the light seems to be lightening my load. Yeah. Which is kind of what you're saying with your, your husband. He didn't have, he didn't allow himself to have the means to talk to somebody. Right. Uh, and then, but if you're doing that, it's going to take years. It may take it all his life, but at least he's doing it. At least he's venturing down that road. And that's, most people don't want to look at their baggage. They don't want to unpack their suitcase and look at all the moldy clothes. It's like, you know, just clean that fucking thing out and learn how to live, you know, learn how to travel in a new suitcase. It's kind of a reinvent, reinvention of yourself. So, go ahead. With resuming the affair, um, my husband found out again. Um, and so he said, okay, we're done. We are... We're going to get a divorce. Uh, his first reaction was to take the kids away and tell me that I was never going to see my kids again. Um, and that lasted maybe 48 hours. Um, and then we were living together and discussing, okay, how are we going to break this down because um and I had no objection to the divorce either because I was I was burned out. Right. I yeah. I couldn't keep doing it. Um so there was no objection. There was no argument or fighting on that. Um but we, yeah, decided to get divorced. We were trying to just do preliminary discussions together of 
how's this going to break down? What kind of custody arrangements? What, like, who's moving where? Stuff like that. Um, and um, at one point, he wanted to fight about things. And I said, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of fighting. I'm so tired of fighting to do the things that I want. I'm tired of fighting to keep you here. I'm tired of fighting against your demons for you to take care of you. I'm tired, like just everything. I didn't express this. I just said, I am tired of fighting. I don't have any fight left in me. So yeah, I don't want to fight. And I know that feeling. And I walked downstairs to sleep on the couch and it completely enraged him that I wouldn't fight. Yeah, I just went through that with somebody too. And, <laughs> um, but like I had, I just had given up months ago, months previously, and was like, I, I have no fight in me. Um, I'm just going to stop fighting things. Things are going to happen the way that they happen. Whatever happens just happens. I'm not going to fight to, I'm not going to fight against things and I'm not going to fight for what I want. It's just going to be whatever. Um, so I went downstairs to the couch and he was raging and slamming things upstairs and, um, you know, I remember texting my partner and telling him that it kind of scared the shit out of me. Um, and then angry husband comes down the stairs with a suitcase and a car key and tells me to get out of the house. Did he pack it for you? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. He packed a suit he packed a suitcase for me and gave me his car key because I drove the van. Um so he kicked me out of the house in his car. Um, and, and again, I wasn't going to fight it because I was, honestly, I was scared. Right. Um, in addition to having no fight in me at this point, I was scared of what he might do. Um, not that he had ever, um, shown any violence before but um you know the the erratic mood swings of the medicine and the mental health to begin with and then the anger over the affair and the dissolution of her marriage um i was not going to resist anything i just asked him if I could take the kids with me, I was concerned about leaving the kids with him. Um, and he would not let me take the kids. So I left and I went to my partner's house. And then the next day, um, I don't remember if I had texted my sister that night or it was the next day, but she had a complete panic that this situation was happening um, because she's a funeral director and she's seen too many funerals 
come from these situations of parent sees no way out, so takes everybody else um, yeah. out with them. Um, so she was in a complete panic, yeah. Um, yeah. called to have police do a welfare check on the kids, um, advised me to get a third-party neutral friend to go back to the house with me so that there's witness, balance, mediation, um, so that I could properly get things and kids. And so I went back and I got the kids out of the house um, and stashed them at other friends' houses, um, not telling him where I was sending them, where I was taking them. Um, friends that I knew well and trusted, but that he didn't have contact with. Um, so I put the kids in what I felt were safe houses, and then I went to the courthouse to petition for um, a restraining order. And since he had made no violent threats, no verbal threats of violence or harm, I could not get a restraining order. Right. Yeah. Uh, the judge was near tears telling me that she couldn't do that. She, she said she felt the volatile situation and was very sorry that she couldn't do anything to help me. Um, so the next day, um, I lost my train of thought. Um, you were looking up. Yeah, I was looking papers. up the divorce papers and it was, it was around one twenty in the afternoon that I got a text from him saying this should simplify things, at least for the long run. Tell the kids I love them. I love you too. Not that you would believe that. Um, and I thought he was just referring to... Well, it's not e easy to decipher that. Right. I thought he was just referring to the situation where I had taken the kids with me and I said, okay, like I will return them to you on Friday and you can have them for the weekend. Um, so I thought he was just indicating that, that this should simplify things. Um, but then that evening, um, bit after six, his brother texted me asking, is he safe? He's not responding to anybody's messages. Um, and so that's when I, um, yeah, he, I called him to get more information. He said that my husband had been talking with a friend texting with a friend that morning and then 
then she wasn't hearing from him anymore and he stopped and she got worried and then nobody has been able to get a hold of him. So I had phone numbers of several of his coworkers and my first thought was to call this coworker and um and tell him he needs to go back to the work building and check and look for Shep. Look and look for my husband. Um I'm going to backtrack there and say that he had he had several times that spring that he told me oh I brought a rope to work with me and was evaluating the structure in the bathroom I thought about using my belt I like he he had told me so like things were really developing things were getting more intense and then then to have this moment um that my first thought was shit coworker needs to go back to the work building and look for him and then when i called him and he answered the phone my thought process changed and i said no 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 i need to ask did he even go to work today Nope. And nobody's been able to get a hold of him. He didn't call in and um, nobody got like he wouldn't answer any messages or phone calls. So um, I went into an I'm going to just say it was an adrenaline takeover at that point. Uh, I was at a friend's house that was having my kids and I said I just I need to go I need to go now um I need to go do a suicide check um so I raced back to my house and um when I got there there were a couple of people from the church there um I had I had quit going to church. I quit the church in October 2018. And at first it was just I can't handle doing this anymore and I can't handle this with my life dissolving the way that it is and I'm I was already like reduced at a point in my belief of I'm barely hanging on by a thread. Um and and now that's just snapped. So now I'm just going to church out of habitual motion, but fuck it. I can't carry this anymore either. So I had quit in October 2018 and and then through research and learning for myself, I had um, come to the conclusion that, you know, it, it's all made up. Shared that with my husband and. So then in February 2019, he exited as well. He quit the church. And so seeing people from the church in my driveway, I was like a little bristled, but at the same time. You mean after he took his life? Yes. Okay. And in that moment. But I understood 
from seeing who it was, I understood why they were there and how they were there. That the friend he had been texting with that morning was still Mormon. And so she um, was able to contact some other Mormons. And the ones that were in my driveway when I arrived there, the ones that were on my doorstep, she must have contacted and asked them to go to the house to do a wellness check too, because one was training for a, like a CNA or whatever medical degree or certification or whatever she was training in medicine so that if first aid or resuscitation was needed, that she could provide that. So I understood that when I saw them. I was like, okay, so I know who he was talking to. I know that she got you guys involved and why. So it wasn't like a Mormon thing, but it was it was that. So um I just unloaded words out of my mouth and said, look, we're here to check for a body. So we just need to go into the house and find him. I punched in the door code. Why, why, why not just call the police? Didn't cross my mind. Fair. That's fair. And so I told them that we needed to check the basement and the garage first, because those would be the places in the house where he's he'd, mentioned he'd be able to hang himself, and right. hanging was what he primarily had talked about. Talked about. Yeah, we we tend to go through all the ways in our right. minds. Mm-hmm. And then decide on one. Yep. And and that was the way that he had attempted when he was 20. Um, so he wasn't in those places. And so then I raced up the stairs and I was the first one to enter my bedroom. And nothing in the bedroom. Bed was fine. Bed was clean and put together. Um went through the bathroom to the closet and there was a body on the floor. Uh, the door to the gun safe was open and there was a body on the floor. And I started yelling to check him, check his pulse. Um, and the, the woman's husband grabbed me and pulled me out and told me it's too late. There's nothing to do. And I, started kicking and screaming and yelling all the obscenities. I was so mad because I had tried everything. I had taken the ropes away. And when he was kicking me out of the house, I grabbed my keys to the gun safe and I took those with me. And I tried to find his and I or at least I thought that I grabbed one set and wasn't sure if there was another set and I was so angry I ran back in and I grabbed the keys from the gun safe and I threw them across the floor and I was yelling I was yelling at him I knew there was a second set I tried to stop this I tried to prevent this you know you couldn't. Oh, I know that. I know that. But I was angry and I was yelling at him. Like, he's dead, but I was yelling at him. I was angry and I was unloading. It just all came out. I know that I couldn't have prevented it because even if I had both of 
both of the keys to the gun safe, there's always another method. There's pills, there's alcohol, there's knives, there's... There's always something. There's always something. So, like, no, I was just angry because I was... I was angry. Yeah. And that was just how the reaction exploded out of me. And um, so the the other lady called 911 and she, I mean, it was great that she was there because I don't know how the hell I would have called 911. I actually probably wouldn't have processed and thought to call 911. Like just everything just went, everything in my brain just shut off. Everything shut off. Um, and it was just, it was, it was just a rage fit. So they, they got me out of the house and she called 911 and was able to clearly tell them what happened. And, um, so that process things when I was done giving my report to the police and they were done needing me. I called my sister first thing and told her because somewhere in my logical brain, I said, well, we have to process a funeral now. And uh, so we call the death expert. We call the funeral director sister and she's going to tell me what to do because I can't think of what to do. And this is not the youngest? No. Okay. No, uh, this is, this would be child rank number four, okay. um, two years older than me. Um, so she, she told me what to do. She told me, um, like phone calls to make, um, his parents call his brother back, obviously, because I was in communication with his brother. Um, and, um, so, so that kind of started things. Um, I spent the night at a neighbor's house that night. It was, it was a neighbor I had been meaning to meet for a while. She was, she was somebody who quit going to the church as well but um other church friends told me well hey she's just she's just right there and she's pretty cool and like you know so if you just need a fun another another mom friend and she's got kids that are compatible ages with yours and so you know I had been told about her but we hadn't really met and talked until that night when she came over and offered me her couch and not that I slept, but, um, spent the night at her house and notified the friends that were taking care of my kids. And so, yeah, just kind of took care of things in whatever catatonic way I could. And then my sister came down in the morning. I think she drove down with a friend. She must have gotten a friend to drive down with her. 
Like, my memory is very fuzzy and clouded over the situation, but her purpose in coming down from Denver was to pick me and the kids up. She told me that she was going to pack bags for us, and she was going to drive us up to my mom's house, and that I would be staying at my mom's house so that I was put in a place where I could be taken care of. The kids could be taken care of. Um, and I didn't, I wouldn't have to think about things and function. So she must have driven down with a friend so that her friend could then drive her car back up. And she was driving my car because she was like, you, you can't drive. Right. Um, like, in in fact, she, yeah, I think she must've told me that that night at my, when I was at my house and I called her and I told her, um, because she was, yeah, she must've told me, well, okay, one, you can't sleep in that house tonight Two, where can you go to sleep then? Because don't drive anywhere, but where can you go to sleep? And I was like, I don't know. There's this neighbor that I haven't met, but I guess she's cool. So I'll sleep in her house. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like we really hadn't, you know, I dark humor kicks in quickly. And um, I remember sitting on her couch telling her, so you've been told about me for months and I've been told about you for months, but like, fucking guy had to die for us to get together i guess sorry this is an awkward meeting <laughs> oh, a friend of mine always, always makes dark jokes and i'm like dark people understand dark jokes. yes yeah it's a thing so yeah just uh and went through the process of planning a funeral I called it a celebration of life. And I know that people usually just say celebration of life because they're uncomfortable with the term funeral, but then it ends up being a funeral anyway. Right. Um, but like I went out of my way to make sure like I, I really did try to make it a celebration. Like when, like he was a very bright light to a lot of people. And when that flame gets extinguished, when, that goes out in suicide. Um, and when that's such a shock to people because nobody knew. I mean, his family knew, but that was it. His family knew and I knew, and that was it. And so when it's such a shock to people and when my kids lose their father that way, and, you know, we, my sister coached me through how to explain this to them so that it was not, she coached me through to tell them that his brain was sick and he couldn't make good decisions and his brain told him to kill his body. Something that, to that effect he told me not to say anything about how he did it, where he did it, where he died at all. Don't say anything about where he died because if you tell the kids that he died in the hospital, then they're going to be scared of hospitals that that's, well, that's where my dad died. Um, you know, kind of a thing. And he didn't like, he did it in my bedroom closet. So don't tell the kids that either because that's going to make home an unsafe place. Like so many things. Um, don't say he moved on to another place or he's happy now because then that'll like idealize in their brains that, oh, well, if I'm sad and I want to be happy, then, you know. Um, so, so there's that. So like I, 
like I, I really kind of threw it like a party. Um, the celebration of life. I had red helium balloons. Um, I played upbeat pop music that was songs that he enjoyed listening to or songs that he had sung to the kids on guitar as their like bedtime routine because he played the guitar for them every night and sang. I, I told people on Facebook, I said, so like, here's the celebration of life information. We weren't formal people, so don't feel like a need to wear formal attire for a funeral or anything. Um, wear whatever you're comfortable with, but my kids and I will be wearing superhero shirts. Um, because he was, he was really into superheroes and, so the number of people that showed up in superhero shirts or socks or costumes or or the guy who was like I've been to so many funerals I can't handle not dressing in appropriate funeral wear but wore a superman shirt under the button up shirt and jacket so like we did that and like the the songs during the service that I had played to like punctuate the the speaking moments of the memories were um like the movie Coco was fresh at that time and so the the song that the dad plays to his daughter when he's about to leave um one, he's playing it and singing it on guitar, but two, it's Remember Me, and it's talking about Remember Me and I'm Always With You. And so that was that song was a father's message to a daughter in the movie, so playing that to like help my kids with it in that moment, too, or like they enjoyed listening to the soundtrack from the movie Home, DreamWorks movie with the weird little purple alien. Yeah. That's a good one. Voiced by Sheldon. Um, From the Big Bang Theory? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's voiced by Sheldon. Because the name is skipping my... Jim Parsons. That's his name. Um. Anyway, so... uh, There's a song from that soundtrack called Red Balloon. And it, it's very, like, high-energy, upbeat really makes you want to move and dance. Um, and it starts with, if you've got troubles, let them go. Let them soar so high, high into the sky, like just like a red balloon. And so that's why I had the red helium balloons and we did a balloon release at the end of the, uh, at the end of the service. Um, so yeah, really just tried to keep things upbeat and as light as something so heavy could be. Do you regret doing it that way? No. The only thing I regret about that is not getting up to shut up the guy who spoke during the open mic. So I I decided to have an open mic time where people could get up and share their memories or their thoughts about him. And this one guy that knew his parents, but not him got up to speak and went on for way too long because that's what people who just need some attention drawn to themselves 
do. And he was a Mormon from the church. And so he was talking about all this Mormon stuff. And I had been very clear at the beginning that this was not a religious service because neither one of us were religious. And so he gets up and starts spouting all this Mormon stuff. And I'm sitting holding a three-year-old on my lap, cuddling him in his blanket. And so like, my only regret is that I did not get up and shut him up and say, if you don't know the guy in the casket, you can't speak. Yeah. Also, that's fair. You don't get to be sharing your beliefs that we don't share. There's lots of those out there. Thanks. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So no, that's that's my only regret is that I didn't get up and shut him up because there were actual people that were grieving that could have like used there, that. There were yeah, there was there were plenty of people that could have actually contributed functionally right yeah so yeah that's that's my only regret any criticism for doing it that way no because he uh, was a suicide no okay that's good that's good really good um some people just react oddly when it comes to death Um, which is understandable i'm not saying that they shouldn't it's just some people just lose their minds over it yeah and but I, I grew up with it. So, you know, I buried my aunt on my birthday when I was young. Both my grandfathers that year moved. Like, it, all, I, since I was young, I've been dealing with death. So it's not as big a deal to me as yeah. it would be to most people or majority of people. Mm-hmm. By that time, I had lost a brother and three grandparents. So I was You're acquainted as well. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Um, no, keep going. You just okay. keep, keep going. Um, my, so my thought was to backtrack a little bit and say that when I initially posted on Facebook to let everybody know, you know, there was outpouring of condolences and support, um, but what really stuck to me was two female friends of mine reached out and said, can you talk about this? Because my husband is suicidal too. So initially in announcing the suicide of a husband, I had people reaching out for help and support. Were you ready at that time? Hell no, but I did it anyway. That's what we do. Yeah. All right. Well, that concludes part two, episode eight. And join us next week for part three, episode nine. And it is another suicide attempt. Um, it's a very difficult path uh, when you when you walk close to this. It uh, seems to plague the your whole life. It, it looks like. Um, so yeah, please join us. Uh, she's not done, and she's got more story to tell, and that's good. So, thanks for joining us today. And a few things: like and subscribe if you would. That helps me out a lot. Helps me move up the charts so I can raise money um, and get more attention uh, that way, uh, so I can start helping people get in therapy I mean that is the ultimate goal at this point uh, is to start saving lives so please help me do that also 
uh, and you can find all the information on the website uh, for that, for the like and subscribe would be on Spotify. So you can directly link from the website to Spotify under the listen button on the first page. And also on Spotify, we're going to be doing uh, polls and Q&A. So please get involved in that. I am going to start putting out videos uh, weekly, I think. I think that's a pretty good idea of my rants and my rage. And you're going to get an inside view of my monkey mind. Um, so I guess when you pull your pants down, you pull them all the way down. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy your day. The Suicide Monk is out. See you on the flip side.